Thank you, Hannah. If you'll please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now this is one of those uh, texts for me in my life that I could probably preach four separate sermons on. Um, but I promise you this morning it's one sermon, okay? It's not, it's not four into one, it's just one sermon. But uh, before we read, I want to encourage you in two practical ways right up front. And I know the temptation is to say, preacher, save it to the end for the application, but we're going to start with the application this morning. Um, so first, as we read, um, sometime this week, try to take some time to study this passage. Um, I heard a preacher once say, that scripture is shallow enough for a baby to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. And I think that's very true of this passage. As we read it, you're going to get the very basics of what's taking place. You're going to understand it. But if you take some time to really have the passage wash over you, you're going to see a depth there that is going to be very much of an encouragement to you. Secondly, I want to encourage you to memorize this scripture, especially verses 3 through 7. There's a reason why many Christians, especially the young ones among us, memorize John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the reason for that is it's a great summary of the gospel. Well, this passage, especially verses 3 through 7, is an excellent summary of the gospel. And it is something that if you memorize it, you can draw upon it when you're in times of crisis, when sin seems to be abounding in your life, when you're times of trouble. But also it is a great encouragement for those around you to evangelize to non-believers, to be able to walk step by step through what God has done and his devotion to us in the gospel and of the good news. So as we read, think about those two things. Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you have given us this passage that we can meditate on, that we can think about, that we pray that we can press it into our hearts, that we can tell the story of your devotion to us, that you rescued us, that you saved us because of your love and because of your kindness and because of your mercy. We thank you that you call us to be devoted to good, not just for, to profit ourselves, not to puff ourselves up, but for everyone, for those around us, so they may know of your goodness as well. 
Let us devote our lives to you so we may be devoted to good. In your name, amen. Dick Hoyt is a devoted man. And you can tell of his devotion because at the age of 70, he still competes in Olympic distance triathlons. That is a triathlon where you have to swim one mile, bike 24 miles, and run a leisurely six-mile jog. At the age of 70, he is dedicated to doing these races week in and week out. But what points to Dick's devotion even more than his age is his willingness to spend the entire race pulling, pedaling, and pushing his son Rick. Rick was born without the ability to move or speak. And this has been their tradition for nearly 30 years. Dick and Rick Hoyt have completed over 240 triathlons and 68 marathons. I would say that's devotion, wouldn't you? I mean, week after week, year after year. And this all started because Rick, using his computer, uh, told his dad that he wanted to compete in a local five-mile charity race for a paralyzed man. So Dick, at 40 years old, out of shape and never running more than a mile competitively in his life, pushed his son Rick those five miles for that race. And just to give you a little bit of backstory, Rick was born in 1962, and he was born, and his umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck, and he came out not breathing. And the doctors were able to revive him, but a doctor very coldly said to the Hoyts, he's going to be nothing more than a vegetable his entire life. You might as well send him away to an institution. There's no point of bringing him home. But the Hoyts said, no, we're going to bring Rick home. And we're going to raise him up as we would any other child. And so one of the things to do is to participate in athletics. So at the age of 40, Dick pushed Rick across that finish line. And as Dick put it, Rick had the largest, greatest smile he had ever seen in his entire life. And that night when they got home, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I feel, when we are running... It feels like my disability has disappeared. So overnight, Dick and Rick became devoted to races. And eventually the challenge came, of course, to step it up. And they were told, why don't you compete in a triathlon? So Dick had not ridden his bike since the age of six, created a bike with a seat on the front of it, and put an 80-pound bag of cement on the seat for training purposes. But he said that actually wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was he goes, I was used to swimming doggy paddle style. <laughs> and he had to swim competitively for the first time. So he devoted himself to running, biking, swimming, day in and day out. That was 1985. And in 1989, they flew to Hawaii to compete in one of the most grueling endurance races on the planet, the Ironman Triathlon. It's a triathlon where you swim 2.4 miles, bike 112 miles, and run a full marathon. The Hoyts competed, 
and the Hoyts completed the race. And it takes devotion to do that. It takes devotion to compete, to be willing to give up your time, your energy, your focus, to give up passions that you might have to say, I'm going to dedicate myself to this, to pursue it. That is devotion. And we all know what it's like to be devoted to something. Some of us say we're devoted to work, we're devoted to our families. Some of you are devoted to athletics where you're willing to run and bike and swim. Um, some of us are devoted to our hobbies where we are willing to put in time and money and energy into, I want to pursue this thing. I want to be devoted to it. So what does God call us to be devoted to in this passage? It's in verse 8. It says, devote yourselves to doing what is good. Are you devoted to that? Are you willing to give up most of your time, your energy, your focus, your heart to pursue doing what is good, to be devoted to doing what is good? And just like you can't casually get up one morning and go, I'm going to compete in a triathlon today. That is... That is the call that we have for devotion to good. We can't just casually get up and say, I hope I do good today. I hope I'm a good person. But it is, it is actually a call by God for a deliberate, intentional devotion to it. And as the first part of the passage says, to be devoted to being obedient, to be devoted, ready to do what is good, to be devoted to humility. Are you devoted to those things? Are you devoted to doing good? Do you get up in the morning and say, all right, how can I now pursue the good for others? Do you halfway through the day, sort of like a marathon runner where they're checking to make sure that they're hydrating enough, that they're getting enough nutrients to keep going on, do you halfway through the day say, have I devoted myself to the good that the Lord has called me to do? How are my vitals? How am I doing in this? And at the end of the day, do you kind of look back on, on the day and, and critique yourself and say, what can I do different tomorrow? to pursue good with a stronger devotion? What do I need to change? Who do I need to call and repent to? Now look, I, I know that I don't have the devotion to running like the Hoyts do, but I, re I also recognize by reading this passage that I do not have the devotion to doing good as the Lord calls me to. So what are we to do? Well, this is actually where we get to the heart of the passage because before we are called to devote ourselves to good, we are told to stress something, to give importance to, to highlight, and that is the gospel. And that is what we get to see flowing throughout this passage, even before our devotion to good, we get to see God's devotion to us. God's rescuing of us. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, just two points God's devotion to us and our devotion to him. Now I want to make it clear that God is devoted to his glory and to his purpose, and that is enough. But as we see throughout this passage, it is a lot about his devotion to us as well. First, look back at verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, even if you don't believe in God, you have to believe in that verse. Because especially the last part of the verse, we all know people that we have hated. 
either right now you can say, yep, there's people in my life that I hate right now, or people in the past that you have either said to them or have said to others, I hate that person. And not only that, but I'm sure that there's been people in your life, either you've heard through gossip where, you're, where you said, I'm pretty sure that person doesn't like me, or people have come straight to you, to your face, and said, I hate you. So that is true of all of us, but, and, and this is true of me, is I know of people who have hated me, and I have said those words out loud, I hate that person. But it's more than that, it's deeper than that, because all of this is true of me. At, at, at times, I've been foolish, I've been disobedient. I've, I've pursued passion and pleasure over the goodness of others, even over my own goodness, where I thought, if I pursued this thing, then it will be good for me, but in fact, it's been destructive. I know what it's like to have malice towards other people, where I have wished ill upon people. I know what it's like to have envy, in which I've wished good things had not happened to people, or I wish that they happened to me instead. Now, when you know this about me, or let's say you saw this in action, let's say you're one of those people who said, I saw the wickedness of this person. What is typically the solution to that? Especially now in today's society on social media, when you see someone fall, when you see someone fail, what is the solution? To cancel them. To cast them out. To shame them. To make them withdraw from society. And this is true of us, is that when we get angry, when we get mad at people, then our temptation is to say, I want to cast you out. I want to cast you aside. I want you out of my life. And either we do that just one-on-one, or we do that as a society. And that is the cure. That is the thing that we say, this is the thing that will solve this problem. As long as we cast out enough wicked people, as long as we get rid of enough people, then we'll live a better life. We'll be better as a society. We'll be okay. And maybe this isn't just people outside. Maybe this is for you yourself. I admit that at times I've thought that has been the solution for my life. I have seen my wickedness. I've seen my failures. I've seen that life hasn't been going the way that it is. And I thought, maybe if I just ran away from it all, or maybe if I just ended it all, that would be better. That would be a good solution. But what is God's solution in this passage? Look, God knows the diagnosis. He's the one who wrote it. There's not a question in his mind of who we are or what we're going to become. God does not ignore or pretend that it's not there. Face value, it's all there, and yet he devotes himself to us. He does not say, send them away. He says, I will bring them home. And we see that start with verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And look, it is one thing to say that someone is loving and kind. I mean, that could be the characteristics and descriptions of a Walmart greeter. But it's another thing to say that someone is devoted to love and kindness. It is someone who puts it into action. It is not just seen, but it is displayed. It is experience. And God in his love and in his kindness and in his devotion to those things, put it into action where he saw our sin, he saw our wickedness, he saw our hatred, and he saved us. He is so devoted to his love and his kindness that he is willing to rescue us, and that shows his devotion for us. 
And to answer the question, wait, why did God do this? We see this in verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And to be clear, what this means is that God didn't see anything in us worth saving. This is not an investment plan on God's behalf. This is not God hoping that his devotion will lead to a payoff. This is God putting in the work now to rescue us with no, I, no thought, no idea, no dedication, no saying, they owe me. God's devotion flows from his love and his kindness. And we now see it's because of his mercy. And mercy can only be shown when it cannot be paid back. If we were to pay back God, or if we were attempt to pay back God, then that is not God showing us mercy. That is God simply being a debt collector, setting up a payment plan. But that's not God's devotion to us. God devoted himself to foolish, disobedient, wicked people because he put his love and kindness on display because of his mercy for us. And the devotion doesn't just stop there. It continues. Back at verse 5, it says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace. And this is where we see the cost of God's devotion for us. To be devoted for some, something, you have to be willing to give up something for something else. To be devoted usually means you have to say yes to something and say no to something else. To give you an example, you can't say, I want all the free time in the world, and at the same time, I want to be incredibly productive. You can't say, I want to run a ton of marathons, and I want to be the healthiest person alive, and at the same time, eat Taco Bell for every meal. It's not going to work. You have to devote yourself to one thing or the other. And so devotion means the sacrifice of another. So where does God's devotion cause him to say yes to us? It's in him saying no to Christ. You see, all throughout Scripture, but especially in the beginning of Scripture, we see that God says, I am perfect. And in order to be in a relationship with me, I require perfection. And that is not something that he's willing to sacrifice. That is not something that he's willing to change. And I say, praise God for it. Because I don't want someone who would let chaos and wickedness to rule and reign and to be judge. But God says actually to us this morning, my justice will be done. And those people who have said foolish things to you, those people who have hurt you, those people who have hated you, and I know that all of us keep tapes in the back of our head of cruel things that people have said to us. And sometimes they play. But God's response to it is, I will not allow their wickedness to run forever. I will not allow chaos to reign. I will not let them cause pain forever. But that promise isn't just against them. It's against us as well, because we have done those things. So God, being devoted to us, and at the same time saying yes to his perfection, 
went out to pay our debt. And he sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sin. And the penalty, the, the penalty of being removed from God and his kingdom that we owed for our hatred was instead placed on Christ instead of us. He was punished. He was killed on a cross so that we can now stand before God justified and innocent. That we can have a relationship with God. And just to drill in the devotion, to see the devotion of God once more, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in the garden. And he prayed to God and he said, if this cup can let it pass from me, let it be so. And how did God respond? No. No, I am dedicated to this mission and I'm devoted to these people. And that is God's devotion to us. Sacrifice of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. And there's one more part of this devotion that I think we need to see this morning. It is not as if God's devotion gets to the point of saying, I've rescued you, now the rest is up to you. I've done my duty, I've done my part, and now you need to live a good life. Look at what it says in verse 7. That we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. The gospel says that God's free grace is where he pardons sin and also accepts us as righteous in his sight. That we are received as children of God, that we are heirs, that we have a right to be here, that we have a right to be in a relationship with God, that we have a right to his kingdom, that we have a right to eternal life. And, and look, you, this is the complete opposite of the world because throughout your entire life, you have to prove yourself receive something. So to give you an example for work, you have to prove yourself. You have to write out a resume and present it to the person who's interviewing you and say, I am worthy, so now accept me. And this is the same with sports, is you have, to, you have to perform, you have to produce, you have to say, I am worthy, so now I deserve to be on the team. I have a right to be here because I've proven myself. But God is not like that. We get to know that we are profoundly loved and accepted, and that is the complete opposite of anything you will ever experience in this world. And we get to know that we are God's children, not based on a performance, but based on a title that has been given and will never be taken away. A title of, a, I am a child of God, and that is the title that we don't get to lose. God's devotion runs deep. It overcame our foolishness. It overcame our malice. It overcame our wickedness. It overcame our hatred. He puts his devotion into action by rescuing us because of his love and kindness. And it's not because he saw good things in us and saw a payoff, but it's simply because of his mercy. And he was so devoted to us that he sacrificed his son so that we might know what it means to have a new life. And God says we are now heirs to an eternal life. And now, because of that devotion to us, we are called to be devoted to good. And as I shared before, I could, I could spend multiple sermons going over this passage, so I want to make sure to keep my promise that it's one sermon. So I'm only going to focus on one aspect of our devotion to good, which is the why question. Why do we do good? 
Well, what are your reasons for doing good? Very often there are two that we lean on. One is performance. Is I want to perform. I want to do the right thing. I want to uh, prove myself to those around me, so I'm going to do the, do the good. Or it's even just a performance for yourself. Most of you know, hey, if I do the right thing, if I do the good thing, it's going to work out generally for me, so that's why I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because it works out well for me. And it might make God happy in the process. For some of us, though, we do it out of fear, out of shame, out of, I want to do the right thing so that God is not mad at me. I want to do the right thing because all of us have experienced shame before. And I don't want to feel that again. You know what it's like to feel that where you have failed and you say, I want to avoid that at all costs possible, so I will do good. But do these sound like reasons that God wants us to do good? Does God expect us to be motivated by performance or fear? Well, what does the passage say? Look back at verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. So I want you to bring importance to these things. I want you to highlight these things. I want these things to be the, the foundation for you. So that those who have trusted in God, trusted in what to do what, devote himself to us, to share the gospel, to save us, to rescue us, because of that devotion to us, we may now be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. And throughout the Bible, they use agriculture as illustrations. So if you think to the fruit of the Spirit, for example. Now, I'm not an agriculturalist, but I generally know that there are, a lot of, there are not a lot of fruit trees in the desert. You don't see, uh, you know, forests in the desert. Um, you also don't see a lot of trees in Antarctica. I'm not sure if there's any trees in Antarctica that produce fruit. But I do know that trees that are nourished well, that have a firm foundation, that roots grow deep, that they have a lot of water, they have a lot of sunlight, they produce really good fruit. So how are we to produce good fruit in our lives? How are we to produce the fruits of the Spirit? How are we to produce good works? Well, where are your roots? Where is the thing that you draw nutrients from? Where is the thing that motivates you, empowers you, gives you strength? It's what we've been talking about this entire time. It's God's devotion to us. We get to be motivated. We get to be strengthened by God's love and grace. And that is the thing that empowers us to do good, to devote ourselves to good. Because it's going to be the thing, it's going to be the only thing that keeps us going forward when doing good becomes extremely hard. It's going to be the only thing that motivates us, that pushes us, that continues to press us forward when humility feels impossible. We need something in our lives that we can run to, that we can drink from, that can nourish us when times get hard. And that, we can know, is God's devotion to us. God's love for us. And look, this morning, I know that you don't need a lesson on humility. You know whether you're humble or not. And if you're not sure, ask the person next to you. I'm sure that they'll let you know. You don't need more information, more knowledge, more practical solutions. What you need is to be close to the one who was humble. 
who was humble enough to take the shame and the penalty for our sins and to die on our behalf. Look, you don't need... What devotes you to doing good is to run to the well that won't run dry. And it's deeper than our knowledge. It's deeper than our feelings. It's deeper than our strength. It is resting on God's devotion for us. It's resting on the truth of the gospel that God has rescued me and he loves me. That God is so devoted to me that now I can devote my life to him and be devoted to doing good. It is a motivation based on this truth that when we, when we do perform, when we do succeed, it will not puff us up. It will not be as if, oh, I figured out the, the way to do good, but instead it says, I rest on Jesus alone for my power. And, and when we do fail, when we don't succeed, when we sin, it won't crush us because it wasn't based on my ability. It was based on me resting on what God says about me, that I'm his child and he will not let me go. And it won't crush me. So put away trust in your own obedience or trust in a motivation of fear and performance. But instead, put your trust in the one who says, you are my child. Now go live your life being devoted to me and being devoted to good. And we get this promise that you will always be in my kingdom and you will always have the hope of eternal life. They say Dick Hoyt could have been an elite endurance athlete on his own. In one amazing performance, and don't forget, Dick is pushing Rick the entire time. They came just 30 minutes off the world record for a marathon. The world record. And so when people say to Dick, you could have been in the Olympics, you could have been this great athlete, Dick's not so sure. As a matter of fact, he says no. He says this, I just don't have the desire to be out there running by myself. I think it's just something that comes from his body to my body, and it makes us go faster. And a reporter just making sure that they're clear, they say, just to be clear, you're trying to say that you run faster pushing Rick than if you didn't run with him. Oh yeah, he inspires me and motivates me. You see, Dick Hoyt was devoted to his son and that's the thing that made him devoted to running. We are devoted to God and his promise, which is that he is first devoted to us. And that is the thing that makes us devoted to doing good. Our devotion to good comes from a trust in God's devotion to us. It's what inspires us and motivates us. And we will do more good. We will sin less. We will become more like Christ the more we draw on the work of God in the gospel. The more that becomes the reason for our life, the more that becomes the motivation for our life, then the more our lives will reflect the truth in our actions and in our goodness. So this morning, hear of God's devotion to you, and because of that, devote yourselves to good. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that you have devoted yourself to us, that you rescued us, that you saved us from our hatred, from our foolishness, from our wickedness, that you gave us your love and your kindness and your mercy, not based on our good works, not based that we ever owe you back, but simply because you love us, and that you said no to Christ so that you can say yes to us that we can now stand before you justified, having the hope of eternal life. We pray that as we go out that we pursue good, that we devote ourselves to good, that we wake up in the morning and say, how can I devote myself to good so that it may be excellent and profitable for everyone? And let us do it not out of fear, not out of performance, but simply because you love us and we know of your devotion to us. In your name, amen.